The sermon is going to be drawn from the New Testament reading, and that is taken from the book of Galatians, chapter 1, verse 1 to 12. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, Let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through a revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. A middle-aged woman is wanting to get her children into the Boy Scouts. The Boy Scouts meet at the Mormon temple. She is a nominal Roman Catholic, Christmas and Easter, Uh, but to have your kids in the Boy Scouts, you kind of sort of got to be a Mormon in this town. So she calls her friend from high school who has become a minister and asks him, now, if I become a Mormon, what do I have to do? What will my life be like? She doesn't ask, what do they believe? She doesn't ask, uh, what is the message they hold to? She asks, now, if, if politically I have to become a Mormon, what will that practically mean about what I do when I get my kids into the Boy Scouts? A middle-aged man has had a series of wives and live-in girlfriends And finally, his Roman Catholic diocese is sick of it, and they excommunicate him. So he thinks to himself, what will I do now? Uh, Being a Roman Catholic has been a major part of my life. I know what I'll do. I will become a Lutheran. Lutherans kind of look a lot like Roman Catholics, and they won't deny me communion. Heck, I'll join the ELCA They wouldn't deny me communion if I killed puppies on a regular basis. So that is what he does. He goes from Roman Catholicism to Lutheranism. He never asks himself, what does the Roman Catholic Church teach? He has kind of a basic knowledge of it, but not really. 
And he never asks, what is it that the Lutheran church teaches, or what is it that the liberal version of the Lutheran church teaches? He just simply wants to take communion and have religion as part of his life, so from one he goes to the other. A young Dutchman is marrying a Roman Catholic girl in northwest Iowa. To marry his uh, fiancée, he must become a Roman Catholic. He has grown up all his life in the Reformed Church. He has been catechized. But the Romanists demand, if you marry our people, you have to join our church. So without any thought about what Romanism teaches, and without any thought about what his church taught, he happily marries the Roman Catholic girl, and we all come to his wedding, and the Romanists sit on one side and the Reformed on the other, and it's a beautiful service where uh, he does make the public pronouncement, now I'm a Roman Catholic, he doesn't really think about what that means. A woman is marrying a Jewish man. She has been raised in an evangelical church, but to marry this Jewish man, there is an absolute requirement that she become a Jewess. She abandons her evangelical faith, though she has been raised in it all her life, to marry this man, and she embraces Judaism without ever asking, what is the basic teaching of Judaism? She just simply embraces it, and it's a choice that she makes. A bus is traveling through Uganda. Armed men overtake the bus and pull people off of it. They know that those riding the bus are Christians. They are Muslim. They point a gun in their captive's face and say, you will say the central creed of Islam or you will die. And if you say the central creed of Islam, we will treat you as Muslims. Uh, It's your choice, but... Islam or die. Many of them recite the the, the creed. Many of them become Muslim. Many of them don't, and they're shot dead on the spot. Were those who died fools? Were those who embraced Islam wise? The choice was very practical. Life in this world or not. They were not thinking about what does Islam teach or is there any good news in it. Uh, It was a very practical decision, will I live or die this moment? But it was a religious decision. What should they have done? Roman Catholicism is a perversion of the Christian faith. It teaches that The good news is that God, via Christ, has provided the seven sacraments, and if you participate in those sacraments, God will mediate grace to you through those sacraments. The priesthood, which would be me, will give to you eternal life by the ceremonies that I work. The Protestant faith is very different than that. The Protestant faith considers itself the Christian faith, and while it holds the two sacraments very highly, no Protestant worth their salt would tell you when the minister baptizes you or when he gives you communion, 
he is giving you eternal life. They would never say that, and they, they should not. I am a Protestant. I have a specific message that I believe. I do not believe that when I administer to you the sacraments, I'm saving your souls. The two are radically different. Judaism begins functionally in the first century as a rejection of Jesus the Christ. Now, Judaism carries with it the Hebrew Scriptures, but kind of carries with it the way uh, the PCUSA carries the creeds and confessions. Uh, They're there, but nobody really pays much attention. The foundation of the religion is we reject Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah. So it is literally an antichrist position. Now understand very clearly what I'm saying. I'm not telling you to hate Jews in any way. I'm not telling you what political stance to take on Israel or anything like that. I'm simply pointing out that religiously, Judaism as it stands today is the exact opposite of Christianity because it takes the exact opposite stand on who Jesus of Nazareth is. Mormonism, Islam, they are pagan religions. They have a position on who Jesus of Nazareth is, both of them, but they are radically different from the position that Catholicism takes. They are radically different from the position that Protestantism takes, and there is no way to mesh them. Mormonism has a totally different gospel. Uh, If you don't believe me, see me after the service, and I'll tell you what Mormonism believes, and it will blow your mind. Um, Islam incorporates... Jesus of Nazareth, but not in a Christian way at all, the message of these religions are radically, radically different. You cannot take hold of Roman Catholicism and say, I will be a good Protestant. You cannot be a Jew and say, I am worshiping uh, the God of Jesus of Nazareth because they don't fit. Never the twain shall meet. But decisions are made like buying a car. Decisions are made like figuring out where to live. When I was a uh, 14-year-old, we had been worshiping at the Disciples of Christ Church, but my father got hired at Eastern, and his boss attended the Methodist Church, so we became Methodists. Not for any issue of what either group believed or taught. It was a good business deal. And that's how the Westbrooks became Methodists for a while. How important is it to get the gospel right? Well, according to our passage, it's pretty important. The churches of the region of Galatia felt they had a choice between two Gospels. Paul, the apostle who had come through the region and had introduced them to Jesus of Nazareth, had taught them a good news that centered on Jesus Christ, and his message was symbolized by baptism, and the letter will reference baptism in the third chapter. But after Paul had come through, there were other men who came through, and they taught a different good news, although it was centered on Jesus Christ. 
their message was Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah, and he has come really to do two things. One, he has come to draw Israel, who does not rightly obey the law of Moses, back to obeying it. And two, with the coming of the Messiah, Gentiles can come in by embracing the law of Moses and obeying it. So this gospel is that Jesus Christ gives a second chance. A second chance to those who have fallen out of religion, a second chance to the Gentiles, and this is symbolized covenantally by circumcision. And circumcision will be referenced several times in the letter. And the congregants of Galatia were left thinking, well, which will I choose? Which one uh, will I adopt? Shall I adopt this religion or that religion? What to do, what to do. According to Galatians, a book in our covenantal Bible, a word from God, it is God himself who calls people to the grace of Christ. If you look at verse 6, it reads, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. Most translations capitalize the word him because Paul is talking about God himself. God calls people through the proclamation of the gospel. Now, there are some translations that don't capitalize him because they say Paul is referring to himself. But as you will see as we go further in this passage, that's kind of a moot point given who Paul is. At the end of the day, Paul is saying, no matter how you explicate this, God himself calls men to himself by the gospel. It is from him the call goes out. So right at the very beginning of the issue of how important the gospel is, Paul says it comes from God himself. So this is fairly significant. And if you reject the gospel, you are rejecting him who calls you. Who is it who calls you? It is God himself. So if you reject him who calls you, you are rejecting God himself. The entirety of the scriptures is a testimony that man is out of fellowship with God Man needs to be in fellowship with God. This is the way that fellowship takes place. Now Paul says you are rejecting him who calls you in the grace of Christ. That is the exact opposite of everything that the scriptures stand for. True religion brings you into fellowship with God, right standing with God. The scripture clearly says if you don't embrace the gospel rightly, you are moving in 180 the wrong direction. You are rejecting God. And there isn't multiple Gospels. Verse 7 reads in the New King James this way, 
you are turning away to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. So the apostle says they have presented you an option, a religious option. You are thinking about which one to adopt, and you are weighing it in the balance. What you need to know is there is only one gospel. The other isn't. I like how the Amplified Bible puts this. This is a fine translation. Not that there is or could be any other genuine gospel, but there are obviously some who are troubling and disturbing and bewildering you with a different kind of teaching which they offer as a gospel and want to pervert and distort the gospel of Christ the Messiah into something which it absolutely is not. Now that's a mouthful and it's an amplification But it's accurate. That is what Paul is saying in verse 7. You think there are multiple Gospels, but there aren't. The best you could hope for in verse 7 is that the other Gospel is a perversion of the Gospel of Christ. And if it is a perversion, then by its nature... It isn't really the gospel. That's the best you can be at, is that they have taken elements of the gospel, they have twisted and shaped them to the point where it is not the gospel at all. There is only one gospel. You will note Paul's use of the singular all the way through this chapter. There is nothing in this passage that will let you biblically say there are multiple religious messages that are all valid. The gospel is one. There is one gospel, and anything else is a perversion. Uh, The result of not getting it right... If I can be very forthright, and Paul is here as forthright as you can be, is to be damned. Very rarely from a Protestant pulpit today will you hear that term. Uh, Most of my colleagues don't want to deal with that at all. But in Scripture, damnation is an option. In fact, if you get right down to it, the majority of men are going to be damned and people come into the world with their natural setting of, I'm on my way to hell. And hell is a very bad option. And here, when Paul talks about what happens if you get the gospel wrong, listen to his own words. But even if we, or an angel from heaven preach to you any other gospel than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Now, the word accursed is, is very strong. It, it means God himself is cursing you, and that to the uttermost. So if anyone comes and preaches to you a gospel other than what we've preached, let him be under the full effect of the wrath of God. And this is not something Paul has said to them just once in this letter. He is reminding them of what he has said before. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone, including myself, as he said the verse before, 
If anyone preaches to you other than the gospel which you have received, let him be accursed. Let him be anathema. The word means the total putting away from God, coming under his damnation, eternally going into the abyss. Let that happen if they get the gospel wrong. The term gospel, what does it mean? Well, to translate it, it means good news. And Paul has used the singular. He has said that there is one good news. And he now says if you get it wrong, well, there's anathema for you. What is it that men need to hear? What is good news to them? Uh, It's not wealth and health in this world because the wealthiest and the healthiest of people are still going to die. And when they do the world is going to be like they weren't here. It is not that they reach some sort of inner peace for their own uh, desire. Uh, Eternally, all men are set to go to hell, and eternity is out there. The good news that man needs to hear is, God is now reconciled to you. When you take your last breath, and you will, When you get up in the morning, uh, and Lord willing you will, either in this world or in the next, God no longer holds your sins against you. You are set free from them. That is the essence of the good news. That is what men need to hear. And Paul summarizes this in the first five verses. There are two uh, epistles where Paul radically deals with the issue of the gospel directly, like a laser beam. One of them is Romans, where he kind of objectively lays it out in an outline. And one is subjective, where Paul defines the gospel in relation to what they're rejecting, and that's Galatians. But in either case, in both those epistles... The first couple of verses are Paul summarizing the essence of everything else he's going to say. And he's talking about the good news, and the good news is summarized in these words. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So what is, what is the summary? Well, it begins with Paul saying the good news comes from God the Father, and from Jesus Christ the Son. The good news does not come from man or through men. The good news is not something rooted in this world. The good news begins outside of this world, and it comes directly from the Godhead himself, from God the Father, from God the Son, and it is about the Son. The Son has done something that is remarkably good news. And that is, 
Christ gave himself for our sins. Now consider that in turn. The gospel is about Christ, him doing something. What did he do? Well, he gave. If you give, you're making a choice of your volitional will to give something to someone else. You are, are, are giving up of what you have to let them have something. And the giving is from Christ. He has a gift to give, and what does he give? He gives himself. He gives himself up. In the beginning, Paul talks about God raising Christ from the dead. You don't have to be raised unless you're dead. And so when we drop a few verses down and we read about Christ giving himself for us, we have been set up to understand that Christ dies. Jesus Christ is the Son of the Father. He is not under the curse of death. He is not mortal like man to begin with. He does not have to die. But Jesus Christ does something. He gives himself, and it pays for something. It does not pay for wisdom. It does not pay for prosperity. It does not pay for comfort. It pays for our sins. Those who are bringing the other gospel are saying, you know, you have sinned, but you get another chance. You've messed up, but Jesus the Messiah has come to reset the playing field, and now you'll be able to run again having not fallen. If you're a Gentile, you'll be able to play on the field you will be able this time to run the good run and not sin. The apostle says, the bad news for you is that you have sinned, and there is no second chance for you. That's not what the good news is. The good news is that Jesus the Christ has paid for your sins. Now, in what context is that? Is that the past, is that the present, or is that the future? Well, the answer is, it's all of them. Jesus the Christ has paid the penalty of your sins by his death. He has done that. And not only has he done that, he has done that from the will of God his Father. The bad news is that God holds against you your sins, and he will damn you to hell for them. But the good news is, that's not really where his heart is. God wants to save men, the very God who will sit upon the throne on the last day and condemn the unconverted. His heart is that he wants to be merciful. His heart is that he wants to save Jesus is not stepping in front of an angry God who is ticked off at man. Jesus is called by a broken-hearted God who wants to save men. And he is sent into the world because God the Father wants to save those in Jesus Christ. And he saves them 
from this wicked age. In Scripture, the world you're living in is not in anywhere a nice place. It is fallen. It was created perfect. But it is fallen. When mankind sinned, all of creation changed. The world is now a frustrated place. And that's the word that Paul uses in Romans 8. Every good thing that God has created has now been subjected to futility. Uh, Thorns grow where crops used to. Uh, Hopes and dreams are dashed. You were created to live forever, but you are doomed in the natural law of this world that you will die. And like I said, in this world, you come into the world on your way to God's judgment. This world that we live in, though it is created by God and though its original form was good and though it still bears his fingerprints, this creation, this age is a wicked age. And Jesus Christ, by his death, saves you from this wicked age. You are no longer a part of it. You are walking in it, but in the action of Jesus Christ, you are made not a citizen of this world. You are looking forward to an eternal age that belongs to you, and you are not a child of this age anymore. And then Paul finishes with giving all praise and glory to God the Father because the gospel does that. The good news of men's salvation directs men to glorify God, world without end, which would be a fine translation of verse 5. To the end of the aeons would be literal, and there is no end of it. So Paul briefly summarizes what the good news is. He will elaborate as the book goes on, but right at the beginning, he wants to make the gospel the issue, and he has focused on God the Father and God the Son. He has, however, not left man out. There are certain parts that man has to play in this. Let us look at what Paul says man does. Well, the first thing that man does is he sins. Man supplies the sin for which the blood of Christ must pay. So there is an active part in the gospel for you. You sin. And that's why it's necessary. Secondly, man contributes, if you will, by being totally entrapped. You are born in this world without your consent, without your will. You come into a world that is a wicked, evil age, and like a fly on flypaper, you can't get free. So you contribute your helplessness. You contribute in a way by being there because you are gathered to God in Christ. You are unable to pull yourself from the flypaper, but God pulls you so you contribute by being gathered. And then at the end, there is a somewhat active role for you. As with Paul, you join in praising God for what Christ alone has done. But when the gospel is summarized, that's what man does. He contributes sin, he contributes helplessness, he contributes the need for the gospel, 
And when the gospel takes place, man praises God and it gives him glory. The gospel is about, not you, but about God the Father and God the Son. And they supply the active action. They do the saving. And that's good news. Because if you want to save yourself by obeying the law of God, which is holy, righteous, and just. The law of God is not an evil thing at all. But if you want to supply your salvation by obeying it, you are in a very, very bad place. And Paul is going to show us that as we go on. And speaking of Paul, in this passage, what role does Paul of Tarsus, the man, play in the gospel? My father was ordained in the disciples of Christ. Technically, he is considered a minister. When they were examining him at his vicarage council as to his understanding of the gospel, they asked him, what do you think of the Old Testament? And my father replied, well, um, the Old Testament is the record of man trying to find God Uh, There's a lot of things in there that we should find abhorrent, but it's the record of men seeking God. Uh, What do you think of uh, the Apostle Paul? And my father replied, well, he's kind of sexist and a racist, and he's kind of mean-spirited. And then finally, when they asked him, what do you think of Jesus Christ? He said, well, Jesus Christ is the central act of everything God is doing on earth, Uh, But he's not God, and he shouldn't be worshipped. To worship him is idolatry. And they looked at each other and said, well, this is our boy, and they ordained him. And my father was so disgusted by that, he never stood another day in a pulpit, because he knew he was no Christian. His position was totally separate from, from the Christian faith. And he said, you know, any denomination that would ordain me, I'm not going to serve him. And he never did. But his reference to Paul is kind of the reference that a a liberal Christian or an academic would give you. Today, if you go study religion at EKU, uh, the standard textbook will tell you Jesus had a certain message and Paul of Tarsus had a different one. Uh, Jesus was a moral reformer. He taught us neat things like turning the other cheek and that sort of thing. Paul is doctrinal, and also Paul is sub-moral compared to Jesus. The two men are to be compared and contrasted, and they're not the same. Go to Eastern, ask the religious department, that's what they'll tell you. The Judaizers would probably have said something similar. The apostle has come talking about Jesus of Nazareth, but he's got him wrong. The message that Paul of Tarsus gives you It's imperfect, and you should reject Paul and listen to us. Well, what do we find here? Well, at the beginning of this biblical book, Paul says, I am an apostle, both of Jesus Christ and God the Father. When I teach religion at EKU, and when we get to Christianity, one of the things I ask my students is, what does the term apostle mean? And they stare at me like deer in the headlights, and 90% of them belong to Christian churches. If I were to ask you what the term apostle meant, uh, 
Could you answer me? I'm betting you probably could. The word was used before Jesus of Nazareth. It was in play uh, a century at least before him. In the Roman world, Caesar ruled the empire. But Caesar couldn't be everywhere, and Caesar needed to control everywhere. And so Caesar would send out envoys, and you still see them in Roman statues, those guys holding the the Roman eagle, and they've got a a scroll case on the other hand. That is an artistic representation of Caesar's apostles. It was a Roman word, and it meant a delegate who comes and delivers Caesar's very message. If a Roman apostle got off the ship in Ephesus, and he went to the governor of Ephesus and said, you need to stop doing this and you need to do that, if the governor wants to live, he's going to take the words of this apostle as the very words of Caesar because they are. He is the mouthpiece of the emperor. He's not just Joe Blow. He's not just giving you his opinion. He is literally speaking from Caesar, whose presence he has stood in. Enter the New Testament. Jesus calls 12 apostles. Paul calls himself an apostle. What do the citizens of first century Rome hear? They hear that Jesus considers himself the king, that he is the ruler, and that he is going to speak through these men so that the letter to Philippi by the apostle is not just some letter from a guy. It's literally the letter of Jesus Christ to Philippi. There are, there are great theologians from the early centuries they don't make their way into the New Testament because they're not speaking directly from Christ. But Paul calls himself an apostle of Jesus Christ, and he makes that emphatic saying, I'm not sent from men, and I'm not sent through man. My ordination, my apostolic ordination, well, it's very clear where Paul thinks his authority comes from. Look at verse 12. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul is saying, I have stood in the presence of our great king, and he has given to me this message. If you back up one verse, he says, But I make it known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. So when I preach... I am preaching to you what Jesus Christ has physically told me to say. I have heard his words. I am speaking for him. I am an apostle. And my very preaching is what God gave me. Now, it's not as emphatic here in this passage, but listen to the words of Titus chapter 1, verse 1 through 3. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect. So an apostle, and the goal of my apostolic office is that God's elect will have faith. 
and also the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness. So I'm an apostle that you will have faith, that you will understand the truth, and this will lead to godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began, but has in due time manifested his word. So God is active. He is doing something. God has manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior. I will never look you in the eye and tell you my very preaching was given to me from Jesus Christ. It is absolutely his word. It is the message of Jesus to you perfectly because I'm not an apostle. I go to the Bible. I study the Bible. I try to get it right. I try to declare to you what God has said. But an apostle, his very preaching is from Jesus himself. When he proclaims, you are listening to Jesus Christ. That is very different. Paul is an apostle. He is speaking for Christ. And his ministry is a very act of God. The apostles speak for Jesus. So if you are tempted in any way by the world's teaching that there is a distinction between the apostles and Jesus, and specifically Paul and Jesus, you are being sold a bill of goods. The book of Galatians is the book of Jesus Christ to the churches of Galatians, the Galatians. Jesus is speaking. Paul is speaking for him. If you reject the apostles, you reject Christ. And Christ is the good news. What is the good news for you? You can be reconciled to God in Jesus Christ. Now, I had an interesting talk with a dear friend many years ago. We are both ministers of the gospel, and I respect him, even though he has his cutouts. He is a marvelous preacher. Um, We were having coffee, and over coffee he looked at me and he said, You know, Russ, you're going to go out and you're going to preach the grace of God. The grace of God means that God brings salvation. Man doesn't. He just contributes his sin. You're going to go out and preach the grace of God, and you're going to expect men to be grateful to that and to roll over and say, this is a great message, and I'm glad you preached it to me. And they're not going to do that at all. You're going to preach the grace of God, and men will be offended. They will hear you say, Jesus paid for your sins. You can't pay for your sins. God has provided 100% your salvation. And men will look you in the eye and say, how dare you say that to me? Because it offends the flesh. Sinful man believes he can get it right next time. Sinful man believes he can pull himself up by his bootstraps And he will be worthy of fellowship with God. And the gospel says 100% in yourself, you will never be worthy of God. And men will hate you for your message. It was good advice. In verse 10, Paul says, Am I now trying to persuade men or God? 
Am I trying to please men now? If I were trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Jesus Christ. Men will hate you for being loyal to the gospel. Paul is given the very gospel to speak from Christ, and Paul is saying, now I have to talk to you in a way that's going to make you mad. And I know that, and it will. Further on in Galatians, there is chapter 4 and verse 16, where Paul will ask them point blank, have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? He hasn't. The truth is, they've never had a better friend. This friend has brought them the good news that Jesus saves to the uttermost. They can be brought into reconciliation to God, but their sinful flesh whispers in their ear, this man is my enemy. He offends me. He tells me I cannot be right with God by my own power. If you are faithful to the gospel, men will hate you. Now, not every man, because there's the elect of God. Some will rejoice. They will be set free. They will be delivered from Satan, and they will enter into eternal life. But a lot of people are going to hate you, and they're going to see you as an enemy. And that's just the way it works, because this evil age... Well, the clue's in the name. This age is evil. And it sees the gospel as evil and itself as good. May God give us the grace to embrace grace.